Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight we continue our story, The Idiots, by Joseph Conrad. Autumn came. The clouded sky descended low upon the black contours of the hills, and the dead leaves danced in spiral whirls under naked trees, till the wind, sighing profoundly, laid them to rest in the hollows of bare valleys. And from morning till night, one could see all over the land black denuded boughs, the boughs gnarled and twisted as if contorted with pain, swaying sadly between the wet clouds and the soaked earth. The clear and gentle streams of summer days rushed discolored and raging at the stones that barred the way to the sea, with the fury of madness bent upon suicide. From horizon to horizon the great road to the sands lay between the hills and a dull glitter of empty curves resembling an unnavigable river of mud. Jean-Pierre went from field to field, moving blurred and tall in the drizzle, or striding on the crests of rises, lonely and high upon the gray curtain of drifting clouds, as if he had been pacing along the very edge of the universe. He looked at the black earth, to the earth mute and promising, at the mysterious earth doing its work of life and death like stillness under the veiled sorrow of the sky. And it seemed to him that to a man worse than childless, there was no promise in the fertility of fields, that from him the earth escaped, defied him, frowned at him like the clouds, somber and hurried above his head. Having to face alone his own fields, he felt the inferiority of man who passes away before the clod that remains. Must he give up the hope of having by his side a son who would look at the turned-up sods with a master's eye? A man that would think as he thought? That would feel as he felt? A man who would be part of himself, and yet remain to trample masterfully on that earth when he was gone? He thought of some distant relations and felt savage enough to curse them aloud. They never. He turned homewards, going straight at the roof of his dwelling, visible between the enlaced skeletons of trees. As he swung his legs over the stile, a cawing flock of birds settled lowly on the field, dropped down behind his back, noiseless and fluttering, like flakes of soot. That day, Madame Levey had gone early in the afternoon to the house she had near Cabanion. She had to pay some of the men who worked in her granite quarry there, and she went in good time because her little house contained a shop where the workmen could spend their wages without the trouble of going to town. The house stood alone amongst rocks. A lane of mud and stones ended at the door. The sea winds coming ashore on Stonecutter's Point, fresh from the fierce turmoil of the waves, howled violently at the unmoved heaps of black boulders, holding up steadily short-armed, high crosses against the tremendous rush of the invisible. In the sweep of gales, the sheltered dwelling stood in a calm, resonant, and disquieting, like the calm in the center of a hurricane. On stormy nights, when the tide was out, the Bay of Fougere, fifty feet below the house, 
resembled an immense black pit, from which ascended mutterings and sighs, as if the sands down there had been alive and complaining. At high tide the returning water assaulted the ledges of rock and short rushes, ending in bursts of livid light and columns of spray that flew inland, stinging to death the grass of pastures. The darkness came from the hills, flowed over the coast, put out the red fires of sunset, and went on to seaward pursuing the retiring tide. The wind dropped with the sun, leaving a maddened sea and a devastated sky. The heavens above the house seemed to be draped in black rags, held up here and there by pins of the fire. Madame Levey, for this evening, the servant of our own workmen, tried to induce them to depart. An old woman like me ought to be in bed at this late hour, she good-humouredly repeated. The quarrymen drank, asked for more. They shouted over the table as if they had been talking across a field. At one end, four of them played cards, banging the wood with their hard knuckles and swearing at every lead. One sat with a lost gaze, humming a bar of some song, which he repeated endlessly. Two others in a corner were quarreling confidentially and fiercely over some woman, looking close into one another's eyes as if they had wanted to tear them out, but speaking in whispers that promised violence and murder discreetly. In a venomous sibilation of subdued words, the atmosphere in there was thick enough to slice with a knife. Three candles burning about the long room glowed red and dull like sparks expiring in ashes. The slight click of the iron latch was at that late hour as unexpected and startling as a thunderclap. Madame Levey put down a bottle she held above a liquor glass. The players turned their heads. The whispered quarrels ceased. Only the singer, after darting a glance at the door, went on humming with a stolid face. Susan appeared in the doorway, stepped in, flung the door to, and put her back against it, saying half aloud, Mother! Madame Levey, taking the bottle again, said calmly, Here you are, my girl. What a state you are in. The neck of the bottle rang on the rim of the glass, for the old woman was startled, and the idea that the farm had caught fire had entered her head. She could think of no other cause for her daughter's appearance. Susan, soaked and muddy, stared the whole length of the room towards the men at the far end. Her mother asked, What has happened? God guard us from misfortune. Susan moved her lips. No sound came. Madame Levey stepped up to her daughter, took her by the arm, looked into her face. In God's name, she said shakily, what's the matter? You've been rolling in mud. Why did you come? Where's John? The men had all got up and approached slowly, staring with dull surprise. Madame Levey jerked her daughter away from the door, swung her round upon a seat close to the wall. Then she turned fiercely to the men. Enough of this. Out you go. You others, I close. One of them observed, looking down at Susan, collapsed on the seat. She is, one may say, half dead. Madame Levey flung the door open. Get out, Marsh, she cried, shaking nervously. They dropped out into the night, laughing stupidly. Outside, the two Lotharios broke out into loud shouts. The others tried to soothe them, all talking at once. The noise went away up the lane with the men who staggered together in a tight knot, 
remonstrating with one another foolishly. Speak, Susan. What is it? Speak, entreated Madame Levay as soon as the door was shut. Susan pronounced some incomprehensible words, glaring at the table. The old woman clapped her hands above her head, let them drop, and stood looking at her daughter with disconsolate eyes. Her husband had been deranged in his head for a few years before he died, and now she began to suspect her daughter was going mad. She asked pressingly, Does Jean know where you are? Where is Jean? He knows. He is dead. What? cried the old woman. She came up near and, appearing at her daughter, repeated three times, What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Susan sat dry-eyed and stony before Madame Levay, who contemplated her, feeling a strange sense of inexplicable horror creep into the silence of the house. She had hardly realized the news, further than to understand that she had been brought in one short moment face to face with something unexpected and final. It did not even occur to her to ask for any explanation. She thought, accident, terrible accident, blood to the head, fell down a trap door in the loft. She remained there, distracted and mute, blinking her old eyes. Suddenly, Susan said, I have killed him. For a moment, the mother stood still, almost unbreathing, but with composed face. The next second, she burst out into a shout. You miserable mad woman! They will cut your neck! She fancied the gendarme entering the house, saying to her, We want your daughter. Give her up. The gendarmes with the severe, hard faces of men on duty. She knew the brigadier well, an old friend, familiar and respectful, saying heartily, To your good health, madame, before lifting to his lips the small glass of cognac out of the special bottle she kept for friends. And now... She was losing her head. She rushed here and there as if looking for something urgently needed, gave that up, stood stock still in the middle of the room, and screamed at her daughter, Why? Say! Say, why? The other seemed to leap out of her strange apathy. Do you think I am made of stone? She shouted back, striding towards her mother. No, it's impossible, said Madame Levay in a convinced tone. You go and see, mother, retorted Susan, looking at her with blazing eyes. There's no money in heaven, no justice, no. I did not know. Do you think I have no heart? Do you think I have never heard people jeering at me, pitying me, wondering at me? Do you know how some of them were calling me? The mother of idiots. That was my nickname. And my children never would know me, never speak to me. They would know nothing, neither men nor God. Haven't I prayed that the mother of God herself would not hear me? A mother who is accursed, I or the man who is dead. Tell me, I took care of myself. Do you think I would defy the anger of God and have my house full of those things that are worse than animals who know the hand that feeds them, who blasphemed at the night at the very church door? Was it I 
I only wept and prayed for mercy, and I feel the curse at every moment of the day. I see it round me from morning to night. I've got to keep them alive, to take care of my misfortune and shame. And he would come. I begged him in heaven for mercy. No. Then we shall see. He came this evening, I thought to myself. Again, I had my long scissors. I heard him shouting. I saw him near. I must. Must I? Then take. And I struck him in the throat above the breastbone. I never heard him even sigh. I left him standing. It was a minute ago. How did I come here? Madame Levay shivered. A wave of cold ran down her back, down her fat arms, under her tight sleeves. Made her stamp gently where she stood. Quivers ran over her broad cheeks, across the thin lips, ran amongst the wrinkles at the corners of her steady old eyes. She stammered, You wicked woman! You disgrace me! There, you always resembled your father. What do you think will become of you and the other world and this? Oh, misery! She was very hot now. She felt burning inside. She wrung her perspiring hands and suddenly, starting in great haste, began to look for her big shawl and umbrella, feverishly, never once glancing at her daughter, who stood in the middle of the room, following her with a gaze distracted and cold. Nothing worse than in this, said Susan. Her mother, umbrella in hand and trailing the shawl over the floor, groaned profoundly. I must go to the priest, she burst out passionately. I do not know whether you even speak the truth. You are a horrible woman. They will find you anywhere. You may stay here or go. There is no room for you in this world. Ready now to depart, she yet wandered aimlessly about the room, putting the bottles on the shelf, trying to fit with trembling hands the covers on cardboard boxes. Whenever the real sense of what she had heard emerged for a second from the haze of her thoughts, she would fancy that something had exploded in her brain without, unfortunately, bursting her head to pieces, which would have been a relief. She blew the candles out one by one without knowing it, and was horribly startled by the darkness. She fell on a bench and began to whimper. After a while, she ceased, and sat listening to the breathing of her daughter, whom she could hardly see, still and upright, giving no other sign of life. She was becoming old rapidly at last during those minutes. She spoke in tones unsteady, cut about by the rattle of teeth, like one shaken by a deadly fit of a quay. I wish you had died little. I will never dare to show my old head in the sunshine again. There are worse misfortunes than idiot children. I wish you had been born to me simple, like your own. She saw the figure of her daughter pass before the faint and livid clearness of a window. Then it appeared in the doorway for a second, and the door swung to with a clang. Madame Levay, as if awakened by the noise from a long nightmare, rushed out. Susan, she shouted from the doorstep. She heard a stone roll a long time down the declivity of the rocky beach above the sands. She stepped forward cautiously, one hand on the wall of the house, and peered down into the smooth darkness of the empty bay. Once again she cried, Susan! 
You will kill yourself there. The stone had taken its last leap in the dark, and she heard nothing now. A sudden thought seemed to strangle her, and she called no more. She turned her back upon the black silence of the pit and went up the lane towards Plowmar, stumbling along with somber determination, as if she had started on a desperate journey that would last, perhaps to the end of her life. A sullen and periodic clamor of waves rolling over reefs followed her far inland between the high hedges sheltering the gloomy solitude of the fields. Susan had run out, swerving sharp to the left at the door, and on the edge of the slope crouched down behind a boulder. A dislodged stone went on downwards, rattling as it leaped. When Madame Levey called out, Susan could have, by stretching her hand, touched her mother's skirt. Had she had the courage to move a limb, she saw the old woman go away, and she remained still, closing her eyes and pressing her side to the hard and rugged surface of the rock. After a while, a familiar face with fixed eyes and an open mouth became visible in the intense obscurity amongst the boulders. She uttered a low cry and stood up. The face vanished, leaving her to gasp and shiver alone in the wilderness of stone heaps. But as soon as she had crouched down again to rest with her head against the rock, the face returned, came very near, appeared eager to finish the speech that had been cut short by death only a moment ago. She scrambled quickly to her feet and said, Go away, or I will do it again. The thing wavered, swung to the right, to the left. She moved this way and that, stepped back, fancied herself screaming at it, and was appalled by the unbroken stillness of the night. She tottered on the brink, felt the steep declivity under her feet, and rushed down blindly to save herself from a headlong fall. The shingle seemed to wake up. The pebbles began to roll before her, pursued her from above, raced down with her on both sides, rolling past with an increasing clatter. In the peace of the night, the noise grew, deepening to a rumor, continuous and violent, as if the whole semicircle of the stony beach had started to tumble down into the bay. Susan's feet hardly touched the slope that seemed to run down with her. At the bottom, stumbled, shot forward, throwing her arms out, and fell heavily. She jumped up at once and turned swiftly to look back, her clenched hands full of sand she had clutched in her fall. The face was there, keeping its distance, visible in its own sheen that made a pale stain in the night. She shouted, Go away! She shouted at it with pain, with fear, with all the rage of that useless stab that could not keep him quiet, keep him out of her sight. What did he want now? He was dead. Dead men have no children. Would he never leave her alone? She shrieked at it, waved her outstretched hands. She seemed to feel the breath of parted lips, and with a long cry of discouragement, fled across the level bottom of the bay. She ran lightly, unaware of any effort of her body. High, sharp rocks that, when the bay is full, show above the glittering plain of blue water like pointed towers of submerged churches glided past her, rushing to the land at a tremendous pace. To the left, in the distance, she could see something shining, a broad disk of light in which narrow shadows pivoted round the center, like the spokes of a wheel. She heard a voice calling, Hey, there! and answered with a wild scream. 
so he could call. He was calling after her to stop. Never. She tore through the night, past a startled group of seaweed gatherers who stood round their lantern, paralyzed with fear of the unearthly screech coming from that fleeting shadow. The men leaned on their pitchforks, staring fearfully. A woman fell on her knees and, crossing herself, began to pray aloud. A little girl with a ragged skirt full of slimy seaweed began to sob despairingly, lugging her soaked burden close to the man who carried the light. Somebody said, The thing ran out towards the sea. Another voice exclaimed, And the sea is coming back! Look at the spreading puddles! Do you hear? You woman! There, get up! Several voices cried together, Yes, let us be off! Let the accursed thing go to the sea! They moved on, keeping close round the light. Suddenly a man swore loudly. He would go and see what was the matter. It had been a woman's voice. He would go. There were shrill protests from women, but his high form detached itself from the group and went off running. They sent a unanimous call of scared voices after him. A word insulting and mocking came back, thrown at them through the darkness. A woman moaned. An old man said gravely, Such things ought to be left alone. They went on slower, shuffling in the yielding sand, and whispering to one another that Mio feared nothing, having no religion, but that it would end badly some day. Susan met the incoming tide by the raven islet and stopped, panting with her feet in the water. She heard the murmur and felt the cold caress of the sea, and calmer now could see the somber and confused mass of the raven on one side, and on the other the long white streak of Malen sands that are left high above the dry bottom of Fougere Bay at every ebb. She turned round and saw far away, along the starred background of the sky, the ragged outline of the coast. Above it, nearly facing her, appeared the tower of Plowmar Church, a slender and tall pyramid shooting up dark and pointed into the clustered glitter of the stars. She felt strangely calm. She knew where she was and began to remember how she came there and why. She peered into the smooth obscurity near her. She was alone. There was nothing there, nothing near her, either living or dead. We'll return with our story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this one to feature on the show. You can send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>